Well, I'm going to try not to cough into the microphone too much. I, uh, before service, I went around and talked to some people, and uh, you would think, oh, he, he's just being a good pastor, and I wasn't. I was looking for a cough drop, and I, I'm not a very great pastor, and I was walking around, and I was saying hi, and people were like, oh, you're coming to say hi to me, and I'm like, yes, and do you have a cough drop, so... So I'm, I'm not feeling very well with that. I, uh, I love being with you. Love being with you. And uh, if, my, if I have to cough, I'm going to try to cover the microphone and not, not make that a nuisance. But that's if, you, if my voice sounds different and if I go in and out, that's why. It's sad in one sense that we're finally ending this series on gender and sexuality and... Um, what should be helpful for the family, for parents, uh, for grandparents, for us, if we're reaching out in the community and we're going to love people and know what's going on in our neighborhood, in our community. Uh, in one sense, I'm sad that it's ending. And in another sense, I'm actually really happy. <laughs> I've, uh, yeah, for, for reasons that, I, by that laughter, I feel like you already know. So uh, it's been really good to read uh, so much and to hear so much. And um, I will say one of the big impacts, one of the biggest impacts this has made on my life personally, my, my own heart, my own mind, um, for anybody that deals with same-sex attraction and also loves God or feels drawn to Him and wants to put their faith in Him, uh, I, my heart goes out to them, and I was reminded by another believer, a pastor who deals with same-sex attraction, uh, and he's single and believes in holy sexuality. He actually wrote a book called Holy Sexuality. He said, you know, people come up to me and say, man, you know, for the rest of us to choose Christ over the world, it's not easy. But for you, it's really, really, really hard. And he says in the years that he's dealt with this, he's realized this. That's not true. Every human being has to make the decision to repent and turn from their sins and turn toward Christ in faith, to take up their cross, to deny themselves, and follow him. And he says, some people think that I have it harder because of my sexual desires. But what they don't realize is they may be downplaying, some of them, not all of them, may be downplaying their own temptations and their own desires and not realizing that the same Christ that I love and that you love is calling us to repent and turn toward him. And that was really helpful for me as I have been reading uh, from that community and, and reading different things. And so... It's been a journey for me dealing with this and understanding the temptations that people deal with and the life that people, you know, the life uh, hindrances that people struggle with. And so I'm sad that it's done in one sense. I'm glad that it's done in another. It's been a tough, tough series. And last Sunday night, we ended one part with a Q&A. We decided to have a Q&A last Sunday night. I know you all weren't there. Uh, I know you tried to be, I forgive you. Um, uh, but those of you that wanted to come came, and that was great. And uh, it was a really good Q&A, but I felt so discouraged afterward because I just thought, we're barely scratching the surface. There's so much more to say. There's so much more to do. What about the transgender you know, craze, as Abigail Schreier uh, would write about it? What, what, what's going on? What about people that are dealing with gender identity? How do we help equip the church with hey, in school, your kids can learn this to, to deal with them. And if your child's dealing with it or your grandchild's dealing with it, how do you help them cope with that? How do you have the conversation? What are some tips and tricks? And uh, we, we, not tricks, but tips. What are some tips and helpful principles to, to use? And we talked about just, just a few on Sunday night, and, uh, and we're having to conclude it this morning. But one of the questions we didn't cover that someone asked that wanted, that submitted a question was, uh, how do, we, how do we know Leviticus? We spent a whole Sunday on Leviticus chapters 18 and 20. How do we know that that law 
still applies and that God still expects that because there's other things written in Leviticus that he doesn't expect, supposedly. How, how do we know what's covered? How do we know what we do now in the New Testament versus the Old Testament? And part of the answer to that question, it's twofold. One is, if the New Testament mentions it, not that that's not important, but you don't have to worry about what the Old Testament says or does not say. So if the New Testament brings up homosexuality and says that this isn't part of God's design plan and this is a sin, then you don't have to worry about whether or not it's present in the Old Testament. That's one simple, easy metric to use if you're reading the Old Testament saying, does this still apply? Uh, but the other way is that does God's word actually tell us what is still applied today as it was in the Old Testament? How do we know which laws? Because the question, is, which is a great question, you know, we, we, we're okay with eating shellfish and we're okay with, you know, having, you know, cutting our sideburns and that's in Leviticus and that's supposedly part of the law. How come we don't have to follow that law anymore but we do have to follow uh, the laws against homosexuality? How do we know which laws still apply today and which ones don't? And I thought it was a great question because it came from someone who was wondering, I hear people across the aisle saying, you Christians are picking and choosing what you think is right. What else is good about her question is, in the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, and Peter all reference particularly the book of Leviticus and say, haven't you read? Or don't you know that this is what God expects because it's in Leviticus? So it creates another confusing moment for Christians to say, now, wait a minute, if Jesus, Peter, and Paul reference Leviticus like it still applies in the New Testament age or New Testament time after Christ was risen from the dead, that's when Paul and Peter wrote this, if it still applies then, it means it applies now, but why are they referring back to the Leviticus? Leviticus. If Jesus fulfilled the law, why do we use Leviticus as a foundation for what he expects? And so these are good questions for Christians to ask, and uh, I want to answer those questions today, all those questions. So don't worry. I'm not going to leave you no, no more cliffhangers. This is the last Sunday. Uh, we're going to have to answer those questions. So part of the way we look at this is, what did Paul say to Timothy in regards to the church? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul told him, listen, all Scripture is God-breathed is God-breathed, it's inspired by God, and it's profitable, it's useful for teaching and correction and rebuke and training in righteousness. It, this is where we go, and he was referring to the Old Testament. He was referring to, like the book of Le Leviticus, and he was saying, all this is used to help us. So why would Paul say that if we're no longer under the law and don't have to follow those laws? Or how about Jesus in Matthew chapter 5? This will be on the screen. When speaking about light being our good works. He says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So he's telling them, you should do good works. And for anybody in his day, anybody in his audience, immediately the Jews are thinking, I know what good works are. I know what Jesus is referring to when he says light, let your light shine, let your actions show that you're following God. He's referring to the law. He's referring to the Old Testament. He's referring to God's instruction about how we ought to act as people. God has spoken. He gave us a book. He gave us prophets. We have God's instruction on how we ought to live. So anybody in that crowd would be thinking that, and immediately the next sentence, as Jesus is teaching, he goes, no, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So after he talks about we need to do good works, he says, and I didn't come to abolish the law. That's on the heels of doing good works and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is, as we would call it, the rest of these lessons in Matthew chapter 5, these sermons that Jesus gave, he talks about the law and brings a deeper meaning of what God intended with murder or adultery, you know, if you've lusted in your heart. So Jesus preps us to know, hey, I didn't come to nullify the law or abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. 
And none of it's going to pass away until all things are accomplished. Now, I know some Christians debate on what all things are. Was that 70 AD? Was that when he rose from the dead? Is that when he comes back again? And that's a debate for another day. But the, the point is, Jesus said, I'm not abolishing the law as he's teaching us about what does it mean to, to let your light shine? What does it mean to follow God and to do good works? So Jesus, Peter, and Paul all affirm that the law is good. They refer back to it. And why would they do that? Well, why do they keep resting on the law? Well, number one, I want to give you three points because that's the preacher way, uh, but there's also really three points in this. In this. Uh, why would God have the New Testament speak, write, act, talk like the law is still important and at the same time it's fulfilled? Well, one is the law explains holiness. The law explains holiness and justice. So Jesus, Paul, and Peter reference the Levitical law from the Old Testament to explain holiness and justice. I'll give you a few examples. There's more than these. People have written whole books on this very topic. But here's a few that you could write down that you could know. Jesus quotes Leviticus 19, verse 18, more than any other passage in the Bible. He quotes it, and it's a familiar saying. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19, 18. That was not a new command in the New Testament. When Jesus shared that, he's quoting from Leviticus, which the people would all know, ah, Leviticus, now they don't call it 1918 at the time, but that's what they're thinking about it. We know this law. When he was asked about marriage and divorce, Jesus referenced Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He says, it's been written. Don't you know it's been written? Have you not read? He keeps pointing back to the Old Testament. This is how God created male and female, and they should not be separated. This is what marriage was intended for. This is the design. The, yes, there was a certificate of divorce given, but that's because of the hardness of your hearts. That was not God's intention from the beginning. His design was clear in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. This is what he designed for mankind, for a man and a woman to be in a covenant relationship, a loving relationship, a one flesh relationship for life. This is what he wanted. And so Jesus refers to the Old Testament. So we can't just nullify the Old Testament. We can't just say, well, it's in the Old, it doesn't apply anymore because Jesus didn't talk like that. Peter, Peter does the same thing. Peter quotes Leviticus 11.44 in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. If you're not familiar with it, it's the, it's the part where Peter says, well, you know what God expects, you know what he wants. Be holy, for I am holy. We know what God wants from us because he wrote it. We have it in the Old Testament. So Peter uses Leviticus. Paul uses Leviticus chapter 18 uh, to forbid incest in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, he says, now listen, I've been hearing some crazy stuff that's been going on in your church. You guys are getting a bad reputation for things that you guys are allowing. And one of them in 1 Corinthians 5 was incest. And he refers back to Leviticus 18 saying, you guys know this is not God's plan. So he doesn't have a New Testament to work with. He's saying the Old Testament still explains to us what holiness is. You guys can't do this. This is forbidden. He uses Leviticus 18.22 and chapter 20, verse 13 to forbid homosexuality in 1 Corinthians 6 uh, and 1 Timothy chapter 1, which we're going to get to those words. And he also uses Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12, in his second letter to the Corinthians, or what we have as a second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 16. That's where he's quoting from Leviticus, where God promises the people and says, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to dwell with you, I'm going to make my dwelling with you, and I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be a personal God to you. That's one of my covenant promises with you. And so Paul quotes Leviticus Two New Testament Christians, after Jesus rose from the dead, this is the new covenant age, the, the new covenant in his blood, this has already been applied. He tells them, read Leviticus, and you're going to know what God wants. So, it raises a question for us. We can clearly see that Jesus, Paul, and Peter all used Leviticus authoritatively to explain holiness and morality and the truths about God. Uh, Paul even writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, the law is good if you use it lawfully. So even Paul reminded Timothy, listen, the Old Testament law, this is good for you. Uh, 
This is good. So, the law is good when it's used properly, and it's good because it explains what holiness and morality, what justice is in God's eyes. And the New Testament uses it as if it still applies today. Now, that doesn't help us all the way because there's a few of us in here going, so do we have to follow everything in the Old Testament then? That's what the Jews asked. That's what the Gentiles asked. That's what they fought over when it came to circumcision and following the law. They had so many issues of, so Jesus and the apostles talk like this. Do we need to still follow everything in there because they're talking about it or writing about it like it's still important? So you have some people saying, you Christians, you just pick and choose. You go in the Old Testament, you pick what you like, whatever fits you, and you say that still applies today. Now, that's an unfair accusation. That's not true. And something that I didn't know for many years, even as a Christian, do you know that you can understand what in the Old Testament is no longer applicable today? You can find out everything that's not applicable in the New Testament. The New Testament explicitly teaches us every single time and every single way in which we no longer have to follow a specific law in the Old Testament. So the, the new clarifies the old. And I'm going to give you some passages. There's many more passages. I could give you more passages, but I'm going to give you three categories in which the New Testament tells you you don't have to follow that anymore. Number one is all the foods. All food has been declared clean. In Mark chapter 7, verse 19, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, uh, the, that's the story with Paul and Cornelius, God declared that n- the food laws, the food restrictions, they no longer apply uh, in the New Testament. They no longer apply to God. I want to give you the example of Mark chapter 7 because Jesus is the one who teaches this, and Mark puts this in parentheses of what Jesus was doing. It says, Jesus is talking about food because some of the Jews are like, I can't believe you eat food that you shouldn't eat. That's not kosher. They didn't use the word kosher. That's what Jews use now. But that's unclean. That's not, that's not proper for the table. So the Pharisees are upset with Jesus, and he goes, now, speaking of food, he says, for it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. So Jesus said all foods are clean. He explains that. Uh, Second category, all holy days and feasts are rendered optional now. There is no special holiday or festival or feast in which God's people have to recognize. In Romans chapter 14, verses 5 through 6, Paul's been writing to the Romans, you know, that theologically rich book, and he's been giving them all the theology on the gospel and how there's Jew and Gentile, and Gentiles don't have to become Jewish. They're grafted into the promise. The faith is through Christ, or the the promise is through faith in Christ. He's explaining all this, and he explains to them, one person judges one day to be more important than any other day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Now, in his letter, he has been describing Jews and Gentiles and trying to get them together. He wants them to be in the same New Testament church together. He wants them to realize, hey, just like Paul was a Jew, just like I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower, he says we were meant to be together. And in this sentence, not the whole verse, not all these verses, he says one person judges one day to be special, and he's clearly obviously talking about Jews, and he says another day says they're all the same because back then, The Jews had seven festivals that you find in Leviticus. I think it's in the 20s. I think it might be Leviticus 23. You have seven festivals that God lays out for Israelites, for God's people. They have been following these festivals for 1,500 years. They have been following these festivals. Now, three were national festivals in which they all traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate. You have the Passover, you have the Day of Atonement, you have the different festivals. Well, they would come and celebrate together. And there were some Jews that are like, I've been doing this since I was a little boy. I've been going to Jerusalem, I've been participating in the temple. They're Messianic Jews, they're converted Jews, they put their faith in Christ. But they don't want to stop being Jewish, and their only Bible is the Old Testament, so they start poking fun at their Gentiles sitting next to them going, you should come to the festival. This, God says this was important. This is an established day that his people need to follow. And Paul says, we don't have to follow those days anymore. 
You do not have to become Jewish to become a Christian. God no longer expects that day to be special for you because the days and the festivals are no longer a requirement. We're no longer under that national Israel law. We're no longer Israel in that sense. You're not one nation. So he says one person judges one day to be more important than any other day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. You see what Paul is saying? He wants them to be respectful to one another. Whoever observes the day observes it for the honor of the Lord. So there were some converted Jews who believed that Jesus is the Messiah. They put their faith in him, but they still wanted to celebrate the same festival they've been celebrating for some of them 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. They want to go to the temple. Now, they know Jesus is the real sacrifice. They're learning the whole letter of Hebrews is a commentary on this. They know that these were all shadows of fulfillment, but they think these days are special. They want the Sabbath day, which is Saturday, to be special. So the church started fighting with one another, and the Jews said, you guys need to celebrate Saturday like we celebrate Saturday. And Paul tries to tell them, no, they don't. That Jesus is our fulfillment. He's our rest. You, you don't have to follow that day. And then it's, there was another time where they would say, you need to stop eating pork. You got to stop having pork. That's such a horrible rule. Why would anybody want that rule? But they was like, you got to stop doing this. It's making you unclean. Well, that no longer applied. And Paul, this is the only instance in the New Testament where we have one apostle publicly rebuking another apostle. He publicly rebukes Peter in Galatians chapter 2. You can read about it because Peter stopped eating pork with the people and stopped eating with them to follow these laws. So Romans, Paul writes this letter saying, listen, no day is special like the Jewish observance of all these festivals. You do not have to observe these festivals to be spiritual, to be holy, to be closer to God. That's no longer how God works with his people. You don't have to travel there. He's not just at the temple. Your body is the temple. He dwells within you. You have the Holy Spirit. This is a new covenant. This is a new thing he's doing. You no longer have to go to that old way. And Paul spent a lot of time trying to explain this. Why? Uh, I'm not going to say because they were thick-headed. I'm not going to say because they wanted to stick to their traditions and they didn't want to change and they wanted other people to follow them. I'm not going to say any of that. I'm just going to say what he said. He said, if someone does it with the right conscience, with the right attitude, understanding who Christ is, they do it to honor God. Let them do it. Romans 14, he just said, welcome them in. Don't debate with them. If another, day, if another person says, I don't have to celebrate those festivals because I'm no longer under that law, I don't have to become Jewish, hallelujah, praise the Lord, you don't have to be Jewish. You are fine with being Gentile and putting your faith in Christ. You don't have to change. You don't have to follow that law. So he says in verse 6, whoever observes the day observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat it and he gives thanks to God. So there are no special days, there are no special festivals, there is no special food, and the New Testament clearly explains that. In, in, I'm just using Romans uh, 15 or 14. It's also explained in the book of Hebrews, which covers the other category. The third way in which we know the New Testament clarifies we're no longer under old law is the entire sacrificial system of the temple, which include the priests, the sacrifice, the cleanliness laws, what it means to be clean, none of those apply for the people. It's no longer applicable. You can, you'd have to read Hebrews chapter 7 through chapter 10. You'd have to read all four chapters to, to get the full treatment. But chapter 9 does a really good job at summarizing it in verses 9 and 10. The Hebrew author says, this is a symbol for the present time or the present age. Speaking about... Um, that old sacrificial law, all the stuff that he's been talking about, actually before Hebrews chapter 7, but in particular chapter 7. He says, this is a symbol for the present time or age during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. If you go to the temple and you make this set offering that you've been making for 20 years and it made you feel close to God and you love God and it was meaningful and it meant something and now that you put your faith in Christ, now when you give this offering, you think about what Christ did, great. But you have to know it does not make you more holy. That is just external. 
that is external. It doesn't change the heart. It doesn't change the soul. It doesn't change the spirit. It doesn't draw you closer to God. It doesn't push you farther away. That act in itself is just external. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. And the new order is the new covenant. In Jesus' blood, we no longer have to follow these old sacrificial temple system type laws about how you're clean or like how you shave your sideburns. You know, Elvis, Elvis would have made it. He would have been fine in that way. Uh, there, there were multiple laws. You know, one guy, Miamis or Miamides or whatever, uh, back in the medieval times, uh, figured out the 613 laws and labeled them out, and, and we've been using that ever since. Um, you no longer have to follow the ceremonial temple sacrificial laws. So you can know what applies today not based on Jewish literature. You don't have to go outside of the Bible. You don't have to get a PhD. You can just read the New Testament, and the New Testament explicitly, clearly labels out. These are the laws that no longer apply to us. And it doesn't mention any of the other laws. So all the moral laws about God's idea about sexuality and a number of other issues about how we love our neighbor, how we treat one another, all those still apply. And Paul clarified that also in Romans, and Jesus clarified this in the Gospels. All the laws hang on this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, all the law hinges on those. You will be acting as if the law means something to you and you understand God based on the law. So, how can you know which laws applies? It's not a pick and choose. It's not guesswork, and it's not divided. It's not like some Christians should think these laws apply or don't, and other Christians should think these laws apply or don't. It's very clear in the New Testament what applies and what does not. Now, some Christians categorize, based on these passages, three broad categories for the law. I don't use this, even though it's really nifty, because it is very man-made. Now, the word Trinity, you won't find in the Bible, but it's a great word that explains God, who's three persons in one. That is a great word that helps us understand. So some Christians have used three categories to explain what I just explained using verses. They explain it like this. There are three categories of, of the Old Testament law. There's the ceremonial law, the moral law, and the civil or judicial law. Jews do not use this. They actually combine moral and civic because to them, Israel is God's favored people. This is a nation. And so let's, let's say to eat kosher food, that is moral to them. Now, we would not see it that way. And because we put our faith in Jesus who declared all foods clean, we no longer think of food making us unclean because of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. But some Christians use these three categories uh, to explain that the moral laws are the only ones that still apply to us today. I tend not to use this with people because if they're really well-read, more of these arguments are, are debatable. But the verses that you can point to, like Romans 14, uh, Jesus and Mark 7, when you point to verses and say, I follow Jesus and he made it clear this is what counts, this is what doesn't. Paul made it clear this is what counts, this is what doesn't. This is how we live under the New Testament. I would rather do it that way and explain to people using the verses. But these are great categories that some people use, even though they're debatable. So, in other words, summary. Even though the New Testament gives us a new covenant, it does not make the Old Testament obsolete. Just as Jesus says, I'm not come to abolish it, and he respects it, he points back to it. Just as Peter and Paul point back to the Old Testament and say, you should know what sexual morality is, he wrote it in Leviticus 18. The same way that we respect it and understand it, we also know that foods no longer make us unclean. We don't need the temple or the sacrificial system or the cleanliness laws. Uh, we don't need the judicial law. Like um, if you take something from your neighbor, you have to repay it back with 25% or you have to add stuff to it. That's a great rule, but that's not something a Christian has to abide by because we're no longer under that judicial system based on we don't have to be Jewish to be Christians. We could be Gentiles. Most of Paul's letters... He writes about that because that's what they were dealing with 2,000 years ago. So you don't, you respect the law, but you no longer live under certain laws. So 
You can eat pork and go to Red Lobster, and you don't have to get circumcised to be a part of the church. You, you no longer have to give a certain sacrifice when you have a baby, but you know what sexual morality is, all based on the same book, all based on the same law. And the New Testament clarifies what applies and what doesn't. So, the law explains holiness and justice. If people say, homosexuality, why are you going back to ancient literature in the Old Testament? You don't even apply it all. You could say, oh, no, that's fine. You're right. The New Testament clarifies that. I can point you to these verses. These laws still apply, and I can show you in the New Testament. Because the law explains holiness, it explains justice. The law also, and maybe even greater than that, exposes our sin. The law exposes our sin. So in Romans 5 verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. So Paul's writing them in the Romans, and he's been spending a few chapters saying, listen, we're all sinners. The wages of sin is death. We're all guilty. No one's better off than the other. I mean, it's good if you have the Old Testament law because it exposes sin and gives you a reflection of God's character and who he is and what he's done. But we are all sinners. We all need salvation, Jew and Gentile alike. And then he talks about what it takes to be saved. He says, you've got to turn from your sin and you've got to place your faith in Jesus. He uses Abraham as an example in Romans chapter 4. He says, now when was it credited as righteousness to Abraham? Was it after he sacrificed his son? No. It was his faith that was credited as righteousness, not any of the law, which wasn't even given for 430 years later when Moses gave the law at Mount Sinai. So Abraham, your father, was righteous not by works, but by faith. Then you get into Romans chapter 5, and he's explaining this whole idea about the law and about faith. And he says, now listen, why do you guys want to keep referring to the law? Why do you want to keep going back to the law saying, oh, the law is going to make me holy, the law is going to make me righteous? Don't you realize that God gave you the law because you're sinners? Don't you realize that when God gave you the law, it increased sin? It should make the average reader stand back and go, wait a minute, the law was added that the trespass might increase so that my sins would increase? Did God give the law so that we would sin more? No. God gave the law to expose our sin so that we would recognize we are sinners. And so Paul tells them, listen, the law is not going to make you good. This is what the Jews kept doing. This is what the Pharisees kept doing. They had God's law, like the 613 laws that were later invented. Jesus never heard of the 613 idea. But they have the Old Testament law. Then they started putting laws on top of those laws or boundaries in front of boundaries. And then they put boundaries in front of the boundaries in front of the boundaries. And they had all kind of made-up laws about spitting on the ground, and that's considered work. They created all these rules because in their mind they thought, if we have more rules, we will be more holy. Did that work? No. Their rules did nothing to change their heart. The more rules they had, the further they moved away from Christ. And Paul's trying to tell them, listen, the whole reason why God gave you the law was to help you understand how much of a sinner you really are. It's so that the sins would increase so that you would know your sin. I'll give you an example. Uh, Another family I know, their kids are sinners. And their kids, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's, let's have mercy on them. Okay. Uh, their kids, one of their kids, uh, it wasn't until his dad told him, I don't want you to do this, that then, guess what? That's all he wanted to do. He didn't even want to do that before his dad said, hey, I don't want you to do this. He would have gone about his day. He was super happy without that rule. As soon as his dad gave him that rule, he was like, now I want to do it. And he did it. And he did it to break the rule. Now, is this just kids? No. This is part of our nature. There are times when the reason why I want to do it is because you're telling me I shouldn't do it. Any rebellious people in here? That are just particularly real. Okay, okay. No, that's and you're honest too. That was that's good. Where do you go? Where do you be This is, you know our church is growing. This is great. Uh, you, we should. We're all sinners. Yes. 
there is something in our nature that we don't even know we want to disobey until the law is given. And so Paul is trying to tell them, why do you Jews keep thinking that if you have more strict laws and enforce them, it's going to make people more righteous? It will not. It was given in the first place to show you how unrighteous you are. The more rules you pile on top, the more sins you're going to commit. God gave you the law to expose that so that your sins might increase. Not that you sin more, per se, like you have more sins, but so that your eyes are open to how much you are a sinner. That's why the law was given. Why do you think more law is going to help you? So Paul goes through this through great lengths to explain to people that have been following this for 1,500 years. They don't want to stop going to the festival. They don't want to stop following these rules. They don't want to get rid of something their grandfather's 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 grandfather believed in and thought was great. They don't want to do that. They, they, they want other people to be like them too. They want this to be God's way. And Paul argued with them saying, you're wasting your time. It was the law that condemns you. You are guilty because of the law. You, have, you are lawbreakers. Why do you want more law? That's like saying, I want more guilt. And so he goes through all this example to say, the law was given so that our trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And of course, in chapter 6, he says, since grace increases, should we sin more? Which is such an such a immature way to look at it. But a lot of people question that. If sin actually makes grace increase, because that's what God gives us when we sin, do you know that every time you sin after you become a believer, that you require grace for that sin? And that as God is patient with you, he gives you more grace and more grace and more grace. There were some people that sat there and thought, hmm, I wonder if sinning is not a big deal then because it just increases sin. And, and that's a whole other sermon. But Paul basically told them, no, it's ridiculous. Don't go against God's law. That's what he rescued you out of. You don't need to do more bad stuff. Just don't rely on the law to save you. It's not going to make you a better person. Law does not make you better. It just exposes how bad you are. And so Genesis 3, 19 through 22. Paul, in another letter, same topic. Why then was the law given? Now, I could go into Gen Galatians chapter 1 through 3 before this. He's talking about the gospel. He's trying to free these people up. They're still trying to live under the Jewish law, and he's trying to shake them out of it and prove to them that you shouldn't do this. He gets to Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, and he says, now listen, I know what you're thinking then why give us the law? Then why was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions. Now, you would think it would say it was added for the sake of Christ. It was added for the sake of uh, helping people out, helping the underdog. You would want to fill in the blank in a lot of ways, but none of us naturally would say, oh, I know why God gave the law. Uh, it was for the sake of sins. And what Paul is telling them is, listen, why did God give the law? You need to know that you are a sinner because until you know that you are a sinner, you're never going to repent and turn to Christ. You're going to think that if I just follow these rules, I'll be fine. But don't you know if you've ever broken one of those rules, you're a rule breaker. And if you're a rule breaker, the penalty for sin is death. That's the bad news. God gave the law to expose that sin in us. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. If the law could save you, if it could help you, if it could give you life, then we would all say, I need more law, and I'm going to follow the law, and I'm going to be better. That's what everyone would say. And he said, it can't do that. The law doesn't have the ability to make you better. You are born a sinner, and you need salvation. You don't need better laws. You don't need more rules. You need a deliverer. You need someone that is not a lawbreaker to step into your place, and you admit humbly, I can't do it. I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. There's not enough rules that I can learn that's going to make me better. The more rules I learn, the worse I want to be, and the worse I feel about my sin. I've been a Christian for 20 years, 
In one sense, you could say, oh, you walk closer with God today than you did 20 years ago, and that would be true. But if you were to ask me, do I feel worse about my sin today than I did 20 years ago? Yes, I do. The, the closer I've gotten to Jesus, the more I feel just I hate my sin because of how good Jesus is. In light of his grace, I can't believe it, that I'm still prone to go the opposite direction. So if the law was able to give you life, we'd all have life based on the law. That's not how you can gain life. You're not going to gain life from the law. So the law exposes our sin, and it particularly exposes the sin of homosexuality. So that was all the intro. Here's the sermon. <laughs> First Timothy chapter 1. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That word lawfully means properly, appropriately. This, only, this word's only used twice by Paul, and it's used in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. It means when a runner who wins the race does, runs according to the rules. This word means the law is good if you use it in the way that it's meant to be used, if you use it appropriately. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient. Now, starting with lawless, Paul gives us 14 words that are all negative. He gives us 14 negatives. And he says, God did not give the law to perfect people. He gave the law to us because of our disobedience. And he gives 14 words. He says, lawlessness, lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike, or maybe your translation says kill, because that word for strike could be used for both. And the Jews looked at if you hit your mother or father, that's punishable by death. It's like killing them. You can't do that. So strike their fathers and mothers for murderers. Uh, verse 10, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. That word is also slave traders. Um, that's a sin. Slavery in which you uh, treat people's property, you kidnap them, you sell them. That's unlawful in God's eyes. That always has been, by the way. I know people point to the Old Testament about slavery and say God was pro-slavery, not in the way of you kidnap people and treat them as property. And that's explicit in the New Testament here in verse, verse 10. Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, to good teaching, in accordance with the gospel. He Paul always brings it back to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So that term, practice homosexuality, in this list of 14 sins, is one word. It's arsen okoitai. It's a Greek word that Paul really made up based on the Greek translation of Leviticus chapters 18 and 20. In Leviticus chapters 18 and 20, it uses two words to say that a man should not be with another man. The word arsenokoitai is from two words, arsen, which means man, and koite, which means bed, and you get the idea of bed. Bed means an intimate, one flesh type moment. And so men who practice homosexuality refers back to Leviticus 18 and 20, and Paul says, you know that this is contrary to sound doctrine, to sound teaching. And the law exposes whatever is not sound teaching in accordance with the gospel. So this is about sharing the good news with people. This is going to keep people away from the good news. And then Paul uses this term again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. These are the two other places in the New Testament where homosexuality is specifically mentioned. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and this is also why it's so important, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's why this is so important. People who choose sin over Christ, who will not repent from their sin and turn to him, who will not put their faith in him, that's going to keep them out of the kingdom of God. Don't you know how serious this is? And so he says, you know that the unrighteous aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. If we could just repeat that over and over, because there's people in this room that are going to be tempted to be deceived, to think, especially because of the way the world's going, that homosexuality is not a big deal. That gender identity, not the biggest deal. Just love people. Just let them do what they want. Let them be with who they want. What is the big deal? The Bible says the big deal is that people that choose this, they don't choose Christ 
They choose their sin. It means they don't repent. If you don't repent, you don't place your faith in Jesus. If you don't place your faith in Jesus, you will not be saved. You will not be in heaven. If you love people and care about their souls, you can't call evil good. You will lead them out of heaven. You don't want to do that. So that's why this is so important. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. I know some of your translations have two different words. There's two words in 1 Corinthians 6 in this phrase. The ESV decides to translate it almost the same way because it uses two words, one that refers to the passive partner and one that refers to the active partner uh, in verse 9 when it says, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So this actually uses, Paul uses two words. I think they should be up there. Maybe I put them on a, on a slide. Malakoi is the word for, it could mean soft, effeminate. Every single time in ancient literature, in Koine Greek, that it is used, which we have many documents with this word being used. Every time it's used in the context of sexuality, it refers to the passive partner in that action. And arsenokoita is the same word that we used before. That's the man in bed. So what Paul is doing is he's referring back to Leviticus saying, don't you know that this is unrighteousness? And not just for the active partner, but for the passive partner. This is really helpful for the church because there's some false teachers out there saying, that list, when it says homosexuality, that's just referring to bad relationships, forced relationships, an old person with a very young, 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 young person. That's called pederasty. That's what it's referring to. That's not what Paul is referring to. Paul refers to the active and passive both as being unrighteous, which would not include an innocent victim in that scenario. So the whole point of Paul writing this in 1 Corinthians 6 to say is both people are sinful in this action. And there's one thing I'll ask you about the list. If you could go back one slide, Aaron, actually two slides maybe, go back to the list. In, in this list, I think there's 10 words here that he used in 1 Corinthians 6. Answer this question. This is something that people that argue against this can't answer. Is there anything on this list that is good in some scenarios? Is there anything mentioned here that, well, you can do that as long as you do it this way? Can you be sexually immoral and it be okay? No. Can you be an adulterer but it be okay? No. Can you be an adulteress and no, it's okay for this situation? Can you be a thief and it be okay? Can you be greedy and it be okay? Could you be a drunkard and it be okay? Can you be a reviler? That's someone that abuses people, slanders them with their word. Or can you be a swindler? Just think credit cards and and, and APR and percentage. Can you take advantage of people and that be okay? No. And this is what you'll find. I want you to be equipped. Some people will say this, these two words, which they have a hard time with the two words in this one and the one word in 1 Timothy 1. You can, this is just referring to a bad way of doing this, but that's not true for anything else on this list, and it's not true for anything else in the list in 1 Timothy 1, and it's not true for any of the list in Romans chapter 1. It is a lie. None of these things are good ever. You cannot do any of these things the right way. And Paul makes that clear, and that's why they're called the vice lists. You cannot do these things the right way. So homosexuality is a sin, it's very clear. And the good news is, our only hope, not just for the men who practice homosexuality, but for the idolaters, for the sexually immoral, for the adulterers, for the thieves, for the greedy, if anyone in here is greedy, for anybody that has committed these sins, it's the same hope for you as it would be for the men who practice homosexuality, and that's the gospel. Only the gospel can set us free. That is the only way that we're set free from that, which Paul gets to in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, and you were justified. He gives these three words to explain to them. You were washed clean when you put your faith in Christ. You were sanctified. That means you were set apart. You've been born again. You're a different person. Even if you were born with the desires of same-sex attraction, you don't have to live that way in which you were born. We are all born with natural tendencies to sin. All of us are tempted with something. 
We may not have the same exact temptations, but we all have temptations. And they're all temptations that people have dealt with throughout humanity. Paul tells them, there's no temptation that has come upon you that is not common to man. Every single person has been tempted because we have a fleshly nature. According to Romans chapter 7, all of us in here, there's a war that wages within us. In our mind, we want what God wants, but our body wants something else. And so the same hope for me is the same hope for you is the same hope for our community. We have to turn away from sin. We have to repent. That means we can't say that homosexuality is okay. We cannot say it's okay. That's like saying you don't have to repent to turn to Christ. That's a lie. That's a false gospel. Let that person be accursed. You have to repent from your sin and turn to Jesus in faith because only the gospel can set us free. We need the good news to set us free. Homosexuality, uh, picking your own gender, none of those ways are going to set anybody free. That's not going to help anybody. And people that deal with this temptation are not worse sinners than me and you. And God tells us to go out and love our neighbor, to love them as ourselves, to love them like Christ loved us. 1 Corinthians 5, we can even invite them over for a meal and love on them and build a relationship with them and care about them because they're people made in God's image and God has called us to be his hands and feet. But we can't say that homosexuality is okay. We don't have to talk about it with every lost person we know. That doesn't have to be the most important point in our relationship with people that, that deal with this and choose this. But we can't as a church or a people say, maybe God's law doesn't matter. Paul didn't do that. Peter didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. It's very clear that homosexuality is a sin. Uh, so let's pray, and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your, the clarity that we find in your word, that we can know what's true and what's not, what's, what's harmful, what's sinful, what keeps us uh, from you, what is a sin, what gives birth to death. We're so grateful to you. We do not deserve your word. And we're so grateful that it's so clear, written for us, kept for us, preserved for us, just so we can follow you. I'm grateful that you, Father, have Jesus the Son. He's what you really deserve. You don't deserve sinners. And yet you've made us saints, you've cleansed us, you've washed us, you've sanctified us and justified us uh, because of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, the new life that we have in him. Thank you for what you've done for us. Would you help us to be a people, a church that stand on your word? Help us to be gracious, to be loving, to be helpful, uh, but help us not to shrink back. Help us to stand firm on what you say is true in a way that's loving to people. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.